The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to netsuite.com slash earnings right now. netsuite.com slash earnings. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Welcome to another episode of Bloomberg Intelligence Vanguards of Healthcare podcast, where we chat with the leaders at the forefront of change in the healthcare industry. My name is Jonathan Palmer, and I'm a healthcare analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, the in-house research arm of Bloomberg. We're excited to have Sean Duffy, the co-founder and CEO of Amada Health, joining us here today. In case you've never heard of it, Amada is a virtual first care platform that is Programs focused on improving outcomes and lowering costs in some of the largest chronic care segments in the marketplace, including diabetes and hypertension, among others. It's great to have you join us today. Thank you for having me, Jonathan. Excited for the conversation. You know, maybe let's start off with a 30,000 foot view for, of what Omada does. Yep. And, and, and then I'd like to maybe rewind it a little bit and talk about the genesis of Omada yep. and, yep. and your journey to from uh, founding the company until now. But what's the elevator pitch? Yeah, so you know, I often describe Omada as as between visit care. So uh, you know, this bridges a bit into your second question, but you know, we've asked ourselves from the beginning, what are the care areas where a digital first approach is not just incrementally better, uh, but transformationally better? And it's cl it's clear it's really the only way to optimize for outcomes and economics. And so, uh, you know, that's Omada. We're a provider just like any other, but those are the care areas where we focus on where that truth is is real and present, which is. Uh, pre-diabetes, diabetes, hypertension, you know, musculoskeletal care. And, you know, all of those, you sit a minute in someone's home, uh, you know, with say diabetes and you recognize that a visit by visit model, you know, with today's primary care is not going to cut it. So that's, a, that is our mission. And so I guess, you know, uh, taking a step back, you know, where did the genesis of the idea for Amada come from? I mean, I, I've looked at your background and, and you have an undergraduate degree in, in sciences, and then it looks like you jumped around a little bit before finally uh, deciding on med school. And then maybe taking another turn and starting Amada, you know, where where did the light bulb go off, or where did you get the spark to create the company? Yeah, yeah, I'm happy to share. So, uh, so I grew up always, you know, loving technology. It was kind of a you know computer geek at heart. Um, uh, and then uh, in undergrad, you know, was interested in sciences. It felt like healthcare was a, a neat place to give back and build a career. But um, it was one of those things. I'd done all my pre med recs. Um, but graduated in 2006 and, uh, you know, at night you kind of watch your own behavior. And I was, 
not cracking open my biochem, you know, textbook. I was reading about tech and, you know, and, and like just Silicon Valley was on fire. It was such a cool time in technology history. It's always cool, but that moment in time was really interesting. So I'm kind of panicked about going straight to med school, to be honest. I thought I had to pick tech or healthcare. I found a job at Google. I worked at Google for a couple of years, you know, quickly realized that, you know, maybe the worlds aren't so black and white. So, uh, you know, I went off to medical school. I enrolled Harvard uh, has an MD MBA program. And so, you know, back then I thought I'd do something in tech meets healthcare, maybe a very tech forward primary care practice or, you know, something that affect. And then um, uh, in med school, if you're in that program, they tend to ask that as you progress, you take an internship that mixes business and medicine. And I had known some folks uh, in Silicon Valley uh, at IDEO um, just from my time there and, and came out for what I thought was going to be a quick internship. Um, but, it, you know, in this funny chain of events turned into, you know, Omada on the back of an exploration of like what, what was happening at that moment in time in digital health, which was a very unique, you know, kind of unique moment in time where there was opportunity, but there was also a lot of confusion. So when you first thought of the idea with your co-founders, what did, what did it look like? I mean, what was the, what was that first pitch to VCs, mm -hmm. you know, and how does it differ if at all from, from what Omada is today? You know, it's funny, it's pretty consistent. Like if you read the first briefs for Omada, you're like, oh yeah, this is about what Omada does. Um, obviously we've expanded capabilities, but the um, it, it kind of started with just observing the conversations I'd be having with my tech friends from, you know, Google and my medical school classmates. And on the tech side, it was like those early days of wearables. I'm like, oh my gosh, these like step trackers are going to change healthcare. And then on the medical school classmate side, it's like, well, that's cute Silicon Valley. Like where's your peer-reviewed evidence? Like what, what trials are you running? What endpoints are you targeting? Um, and it felt clear that the world needed to have a convergence company um, uh, where the sides could hear each other a bit better and, and, and uh, you know, the health of the country could benefit. So we, I mean, we, we literally were like, well, all right, what, what might a, a more evidence-based digital health company look like? And, and one that started with a, almost a little bit more first principles, like what specific health outcomes are you trying to achieve? Um, and then leverage technology to do it. So th that 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 led to the the business. And and you know it was one of those where you never want to do anything incremental, especially in a uh, you know a, a risk of spying market. Like what you have to put forward needs to be significantly better than status quo. Um, and we just thought about care areas and and metabolic disease generally was just the target because at least at first because you you know I mean we we did tours in people's homes that either had prediabetes or diabetes and you just, the whole system was failing them. I mean, it still is to this day, but it's, it's almost hard to argue that they're even getting care in large part. Um, so, uh, you know, and then you look at the behavior that, that disease and what needs to, you know, be done to help support patients. And you look at, you know, the biology and it was clear that you've got to have a minute by minute, like day by day proactive uh, engagement with someone to best kind of iterate and tune their diabetes care. And that's kind of the opposite of how healthcare works. So, that was kind of the clear strike zone. And, um, you know, we were blessed with a little naivety. Like I didn't, I mean, it was, Omada's kind of my first proper job. I mean, I was, a, you know, I was an individual contributor at Google, but I've never hired anybody. I think I was making like 50K a year feeling totally rich, sharing a studio with two people. And like, um, uh, you know, so, uh, so we, but what we, so we just decided to do it. And so, uh, you know, kind of ramped on the learning curve of business building, like how the healthcare system worked, um, uh, uh, you know, but, but had kind of, you know, I think good product and clinical instincts that guided us. And did that, did that message, that initial pitch, did it resonate with VCs? I mean, do you have the classic story of you pitched a hundred people and two said yes? I think we're kind of in the middle. I mean, you're, to be honest, as you know, if you're an entrepreneur, if you're, if everybody's saying yes, you're probably like, you know, either 
not optimizing for value or you're, or you're like, I don't know, you're, you're doing something that's too easy to think about. Um, uh, you know, looking back, I think people were betting on myself and Adrian, my, you know, my co-founder from IDEO. I mean, I look at, I look at our seed pitch deck and it's, you know, it's one of those, I'm sure many founders have had this experience where you just kind of chuckle. Um, I'm like, how did anybody fund this business with that deck? So it wasn't, it wasn't the deck, you know, and I, I think what they saw is, uh, at least the people who believed in us was the fact that like, there's a different vintage of talent. I think it was rare when I founded Omada. I think it's more common now where they have tech and design fluency and clinical fluency. And, you know, I think that didn't used to exist. You know, I was passionate about both worlds equally. Um, and, you know, I think that if I reflect back on kind of the early days, I think that that's probably what they felt was unique relative to kind of the founder kind of problem fit. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, as you stood up the company, what, what did you guys do with that those, that first check? I mean, as you think about building this, this ecosystem around uh, diabetes and, mm-hmm. and, and how did you actually get the company up and running? I mean, who were the first clients? You know, what, what was the proof of concept that you had to establish to get anybody to sign up for Ramada? Yeah, no, for sure. So, so, uh, you know, I mean, we raised, a um, what was kind of a normal size seed round back then, which around 800 K now, now seed rounds, of course, are in the many, many millions. And now there's a thing called pre-seed and probably like post-seed. <laughs> None of that existed. <laughs> um, uh, but, you know, step one was to use it to demonstrate that we could, um, at least at a small scale, move the needle clinically. Like if, 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 if all we have doesn't work, then there's no way we could attract additional capital mm-hmm. um, or get, or get customers. So we, um, you know, I mean, we built out the early version of the model product just with a very, very de minimis team. Um, you know, my co-founder and I, I was our first health coach. My co-founder and I would be up at like midnight on Saturdays, writing the content for the Sunday lesson that like was automatically going to be pushed <laughs> like the next day for our early members. So it was a classic, you're like, well, you're, you know, you're designing in Photoshop, like you're writing the content. I was bouncing the books, you know, all that. Um, um, but, uh, you know, we, we got to a level where we had, I think, a really workable, compelling prototype and it was working for people. And we're like, you know what, this is, this is going to be effective. This kind of dropped the paratroopers approach of you've got this combination of remote monitoring hardware, you know, health education content, group community, kind of coaching, mm-hmm. like all put together full stack. Like we, we started to frankly become believers ourselves first and foremost, which is kind of the next, you know, you got to like, um, uh, uh, you know, start, start there. And then that was able, you were able to translate that to clients and, um, um, you know, pre or comment on how we got our first customers, a little, you know, it's a little, um, it's tough in healthcare, you know, when tech entrepreneurs, you know, come to me and ask for guidance on how to build a healthcare business. First, I remind them that it's the double black diamond of enterprise entrepreneurship. <laughs> you know, so, so you should do it if you care enough about the problem to, to you know, really powerful, power through some of the challenges that you'll face. Um, uh, but it's not for the faint of heart and it's a risk averse buying market. So never call yourself a startup. I mean, we were five people and I was a digital health company. Um, and, you know, and it's kind of like, you find the passionate folks that believe in the mission that are willing to make that bet, even if they're putting a little bit of career risk on themselves. Like I remember a conversation at a WeWork with an, a medical director, one of our first clients remains a client. And he's like, you know, Sean, look at, look at where we are. You know, we're, we're, we're in a WeWork. That's your office. It's got six people in it. I think you probably had to reserve this conference room we're in. Um, I'm writing you into a five-year contract with one of our biggest accounts. Like what gives me any confidence, any that you'll be here in five years. 
And, you know, I think what you say is like, and what I said was like, look, we're backed by great investors. You know, they really, uh, you know, believe in the long-term mission and have plenty of, you know, capital help us achieve it. Um, but what you want to say is if you sign this contract, that really helps. <laughs> um, uh, so you just, you find the passionate ones that, you know, are like, look, the world has to be different. Um, and it takes a while to find, find those, but those are partners early on that you just look back and you just feel forever grateful. That's interesting because, you know, if I think about your journey, I mean, your your partnerships have gotten broader and broader, mm -hmm. and I think the, the scope has changed. Can you maybe just talk about who you were targeting in those earlier days and and how maybe Omad is positioned to target maybe a different subsect, subsector of clients and customers today? Yeah, no, no, for sure. So, uh, you know, our, our go-to-market back then, and honestly, it still, it still is the core, uh, was, but though I'll talk about some of the dynamics that have changed. Um, uh, uh, is really self-insured employers, and and that turns into health plan work too. Because you'll you'll say hi to you know the head of benefits at Acme Inc. and if they like what they see, thirty uh, percent of the time they'll tend to preference doing a direct contract with you. But seventy percent of the time, they're like please, any chance you could not make me bring this through procurement? Like, could you work with my health plan? Could you work with my PBM? Could you work with my like X, Y, or Z partner? Mm -hmm. We're totally open to both. I mean, we you know we want to play in well in the sandbox, and um, but that turns into a lot of health plan business, and and, and so it's kind of been the same where, where it has changed is there is a subset, you know, of a hundred, 200, you know, self-insurers that really love to like try the innovative solutions, um, test the new things. So, you know, as you grow, you have to reach a broader segment of the market. So we have over 1800 employers we work with now The the customer profile is quite different. I mean, when you're selling the, you know, state of, you know, Minnesota, um, you know, a solution like Komada is very different than like, that innovative, you know, company that wants to, you know, put, put a toe in. So th that has changed. And then funny enough, we've, I've always, I've always dreamed for the destination where we'd be closer to primary care, just recognizing mm -hmm. that um, there's, there's zero chance that tomorrow's primary care clinicians are singularly, you know, accountable for diabetes care. It's just impossible. So we're putting them in an impossible situation. Um, but that the, the health systems market was never ready for a lot. And frankly, until this this last year. Um, so that's, that's, that one, that's one thing that has changed. I mean, we just announced a pretty transformational deal with Intermountain, you know, great mm -hmm. partner and a really partner with them to deliver diabetes care to their patients um, uh, in partnership with their PCPs. So uh, there, there'll be, there will be more of that coming. And that is, that is a distinctly new uh, that we did not have in the early days. What do you think drove that inflection point? I mean, I, I guess maybe Intermountain will be your, you know, first, uh, I don't want to call it a test case, but, you know, probably, probably something you can hold up as, you know, something you can extend to other providers. But what do you think on their end change that, that, that made them want to do this? Yeah. I mean, a couple of, a couple of, uh, you know, foundational things, um, you know, number one, we're still most relevant to providers that carry risk. Although it's funny, I mean, we have enough coverage across the U S it's like one in 10 commercial insured adults now have an Umada benefit in their medical policy. So even some of the fee for service are like, well, shoot, 30% of my patients in my region probably have Umada. But, but put that aside, um, if you are a provider and you're carrying risk, there's almost like a Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And to do that successfully, you've really got to get some foundational programs in place. As an example, to manage your complex CHF patient that you know, you know, could quickly end up in the ER and put your mm -hmm. economics completely underwater. It's like, you got to do that before you even think about chronic. 
So it's like, there's a little bit of like building kind of foundation, um, you know, that, that the, the markets just weren't ready for chronic. I, I didn't, I didn't think so at least. Um, uh, and, and we kind of sense this because we worked with tons of providers, but it was always for their employees. And it would occasionally pop up, oh, what would this look like for patients? And that's when you get those feelers um, mm-hmm. that the market wasn't ready. Then COVID hit, which created um, really an expectation that care needed to be more virtual. And that was as much psychology as anything. So it was kind of more of a recognition. All right, my patients are going to be wanting to interact in different modalities. Um, you know, maybe that's just, a, you know, something we need to be thinking through. Um uh, and then importantly, and I'd actually say this, this last one is maybe the most important, um, is the labor crisis. Um, we literally, we would need like by 2035 to actually support the chronic care and, you know, ep- you know, epidemiology, just epidemiology of the country. I think we need like half a million nurses, a hundred thousand new PCPs. They're not mm-hmm. coming. There's no, there is no boat that's just going to show up and drop, you know, hundreds of thousands of care professionals to support primary care's needs. So, and, and then meanwhile, the provider experience during COVID was, was horrible. And, the, and unfortunately, the provider experience now is quite poor. I mean, you, you as, I mean, my friends who are primary care docs, their, their day job is visits, either virtual or in person. And at, at night, they're like, they're like nights and weekends in their MyChart inbox. And they're not happy. And so you've got one in five, you know, physicians that say they're going to quit the profession in five years or in three years. Um, uh, you don't have the supply coming. So, so there's a labor crisis and the labor crisis means that you have to think through not, not how you optimize what's on the plate of your primary care infrastructure, but what you can take off. And, and chronic is well suited for that. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, not only can we do a better job at actively supporting your mild, you know, to, to moderate, even some, you know, some advanced type two patients, but, uh, you know, we can free the burden from your PCP. Uh, and, and allow him or her to focus in other areas. There's a lot to unpack there, and I definitely want to come back to, you know, Amada's role in this, but I, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't touch on what I see as the, the, the plays of the big public companies in primary, primary care these days. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Amazon One Medical, you know, Walgreens mm-hmm. Village MD, you know, last week we had CVS Oak. How do, you, how, do you all, how do you think this all shakes out? Because, you know, I'm kind of sitting here looking at it going, big healthcare is moving into primary care, and I guess maybe you'd call Amazon big consumer or big tech, whatever label you want to put on it. But, you know, you highlighted all these uh, constraints, you know, from a from a supply perspective. And so, I mean, I, I guess the answer is that the virtual first becomes part of the solu- primary solution. But, mm-hmm. you know, how do you see primary care evolving with these big companies, you know, casting their eyes on it over the next five to 10 years? Yeah, well, I mean, the, 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 you know, I think it's kind of an example of the attention. I mean, all, all of those, all of those are organizations that have tried to do and are trying to do more or less what I've shared, which is rethink the operations to get more value per credential. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, and, you know, that's what, uh, you know, Omada, you know, does too. I mean, we, you know, those are the organizations we could even support in that effort in, in the areas that we, we are expert in, but um, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's, that's, those are the winning companies. You, you, the, and you, you know, the providers that uh, will not thrive and will not be differentiated and will not be able to support tomorrow's economic constraints, you know, will be the ones that don't make that tradition transition. So, you know, I think each of those examples you highlighted, like they're, they are, you know, they are appropriately working to deliver unique care models. And I think that that's what, uh, you know, the, 
equities community will reward and, you know, and, and as it should, because those are the, those are the ones that, you know, bit by bit will, I think, soak up more market share with better economics. Do you think they'll be successful from a clinical and, and maybe consumer perspective? I mean, I just go back to the surveys that I mm -hmm. see in my world around, you know, people's uh, satisfaction with their local pharmacy. Yeah. It's not very high. <laughs> it's not high. Yep. Yep. Um, I, you know, I do, I do, I do think they'll be successful. It's, uh, you know, because we've been, you, 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 if you're in a capitated, you know, operating environment can choose to use your resources to meet the specific need, you know, versus kind of rely on billing for synchronous time. Um, so we have this backdrop of like, you know, right now all the billing systems and fee for service are completely structured for billing for units of time. Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's, you know, if you're a system that's how you get revenue and fee for service, and that's just like, there's so much inertia there. Um, but nobody actually wants care that way. And you, you, you know, you have a back to the last like five years operating more asynchronously. You want to message your clinician. You don't want to necessarily have to like always, you know, be there synchronously. And so you, um, you know, when you are an oak or otherwise, you can kind of manage differently in a way that optimizes for both your economics, but also consumer preferences, um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, which I think is a, you know, is, is hugely important. Like who doesn't want to be able to message their doctor now as like your first, your first thing versus like the reflex that we've all felt. Oh, why don't you book a visit? It's like, I, I don't want to book a visit just for you to check my blood pressure. Like, <laughs> you know, so yeah, so I do, I do think we can, I think, I think we can have it all actually in this. You know, going back to, you know, your customers and your focus, you know, as, as I think about uh, a focus on employers, uh, that being kind of your bread and butter for a number of years, you know, from where I sit, I go to these conferences and, and there's 10 different solutions, you know, whether it's navigation, mm -hmm. you know, uh, pharmacy, whatever, all trying to sell into that employer market. Do you think the benefits managers are, are burnt out with all these different solutions? And, you know, as we kind of maybe hit a little bit of an air pocket in the mm -hmm. economy, Mm -hmm. Do you, how do you see that shaking out with all these different, you know, very similar providers of, of different services? Yeah. I mean, I do. Absolutely. The answer is it's a, it's a, you know, a tough and tiring environment, you know, as a benefits leader. I mean, it, it's like, just think of where the resources have been pointed. So, you know, massive capital infusion in digital health and companies like Omada, especially during COVID, like massive, what does that go do? It goes hire a bunch of sales development reps that call them benefits buyers. So I, I wish you could quantify it. I don't know if you could, but like their, their LinkedIn inbox of in-mails probably went from bad to just like utterly insane. Um, uh, and so we're feeling that in the market. I mean, Omada's strategy, I call it selective breadth. Like we've been expanding, we went from pre-diabetes to diabetes, to hypertension, to musculoskeletal. Um, we we want to do it selectively because it's, it's very, you know, you've got to like, it's a full on clinical operation to all of a sudden be offering MSK. Like they're, um, the disease management is riddled with failures where it's like people were too quick to say yes to things. Um, uh, so, but, but we, we do have a strategy to um, support our employers that are very taxed, uh, you know, with this infinity of point solutions, which is like, look, you, you know, these needs aren't going away. What might a world look like where you can work with a partner that does a great job in your key ones? Uh, and for you, it's now you're dealing with one account manager and implementation versus five. 
um, for your employees, even areas where you may not think they're clinically connected are. I mean, you know, 58% of people with diabetes have a musculoskeletal challenge. Uh, so it, you know, it can create kind of a more organized, uh, orchestrated experience that optimizes for the investments you're making. So, so that, that, I mean, that's landing well. It's, you know, it's not, um, I think it can be successful in both worlds, point solution and, and kind of the expanded platform. Our bet is on platform. Um, you know, mm-hmm. and in this last selling second, we did see some of the early, early embers of what we think we'll see more of, which is employers being like, I, I want to do a consolidation RFP. Like I, you know, I tried the point solution thing. It's kind of not working for me. Um, you know, I want to unify the offerings here. Is there anybody else, you know, anybody out there that has great capabilities in all the areas I care most about? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, some of the commentary that, that we've heard over the years is, you know, I, there's 10 point solutions all offering to save me 20% per member per month. You know, this can't actually, <laughs> exactly. this can't actually work, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, but thinking about the employer market, and I guess one of the challenges I've always thought about in, in it is, you know, how how does it work longitudinally when somebody leaves, you know, from the Omada world to, you know, they they switch employers, mm-hmm. and I guess that that's one of the challenges I just see in the in the model. You know, how do you see that working itself out longer term? Um, so, you know, you do, you know, that does happen. Um, so we, you know, we don't, if someone loses coverage and, you know, benefits, we've kind of a period where we're going to like let them high and dry. There's kind of a period where we help support what's needed. Um, uh, so, you know, I think that's kind of a dynamic that you just have to manage through, but frankly, that's, that, that, that's no different than what happens in any other provider. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. your, your patient could be in network based on their employer's plan, switch employers and they're out of network. So, um, you know, that's navigable. Um, you just have to make sure you're always, you know, navigating through that in a way that serves your employers and your, you know, in your members. Well, funnily enough, sometimes it's works for a company like Omada. Um, we've had some instances where, uh, you know, all of a sudden we've gotten a ton of outreach from a plan that maybe we've wanted to contract with, but haven't had a lot of momentum with. And they're like, Hey, we need to put this in place immediately because we're winning a lot of business from our competitor. And they're all saying, I'll only agree to join you if you support Omada. So, so it's, you know, it's funny. Uh, there's a little bit of a, um, a network effect that tends to happen. Um, uh, uh, but uh, you're, you're highlighting something that any business in our space, and frankly, any provider has to manage through no matter what. No, it's a good point. And I guess, you know, you, you mentioned the selling season. How, how has the tenor of the selling seasons changed over the last couple of years? I mean, clearly, you know, we talked about the, Mm-hmm. virtual high of a couple of years ago and and now it's a maybe a, a different reality how's it changed for you uh yeah you know it's actually been pretty consistent um it's though though i mean you know you'll read some of the earnings reports in our space and they'll, you know they will talk about slowdowns so i don't know if it's literally we just have favorability relative to you know the especially the diabetes offering and you know our hypertension offering which is you know uh, really succeeding quite well in the market but um uh, you know, I think, I think that there are two dynamics that I anticipate for this course, the course of this year, you know, no, number one, I think there's perhaps even more risk aversion for the, the smaller companies, unfortunately, um, mm-hmm. you know, because per your point, I think the, you know, the, the, um, the air pocket, um, uh, will impact buying because if all of a sudden as a benefits leader, you start seeing, you know, distressed companies or bankruptcies, or you're like, I probably should like if I'm going to make a change here, you know, ensure that I'm doing it with a, you know, a company that's got, you know, a healthy balance sheet and kind of, you know, a lot of experience. And so that, that I think will benefit Omada because I mean, we have, you know, over 1800 employers, we've been around, we're very well capitalized, you know, we were, Mm -hmm. um, 
uh, you know, in a strong position, you know, relative to the, you know, unfortunately gloomy macros. Um, uh, so I think that that trend will happen. I think we'll see that over the course of the year, um, uh, uh, you know, which I, you know, I think is real to pronounce. And the other um, is, uh, you know, I, I actually think this advocates even more aggressively for solutions like Comata, but the employers are about to face a little bit of an inflationary reckoning, unfortunately, that, I mean, the healthcare mm-hmm. system is generally because, uh, you know, providers have had labor cost increase. They've had supply cost increase. They've had the COVID subsidies end in, you know, in this, this year of negotiations with their health plans for rates is going to be very, very tenuous. Um, and, you know, they're going to try to raise rates as much as possible. Health plans will try to protect their ASOs and, you know, their fully insured lines, but, uh, you know, in 2024, care is going to be significantly more expensive. Um, uh, so, you know, it's like the the case for using that as an opportunity to deploy alternative care models that are more cost effective and, you know, and, and work differently than existing care, I think will never be stronger. Um, so that's mm-hmm. something that I think that, uh, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see in the selling cycle as a, a dynamic. You know, you mentioned being well capitalized and, and you know, I know you guys did a, a fundraising round last year. You know, what, what was the driver of that, you know, and, and what does that capitalization mean for you for the next two or three years? I mean, do you have to go back to the markets? Do you have to go to the public markets? You know, what what do you have to do anything, really? Um, I mean, the answer is uh, no. I mean, our, our, our you know, plan of record, unless something strategic opens up that knocks us off it, is just to use the cash we have to get to profitability. So, you know, and that's kind of a path we've been on. Um, uh, and that was the strategy in the round. Um the, you know, the, we, we closed the round before the, you know, the, everything kind of went off a cliff. Um, the, it started to feel a little shaky. It, you know, it's funny over the course of the pandemic, the number one critique I'd get for the community is like, Sean, why aren't you taking this company out? Like, why are you like, when are you going to go public? When am I going to see your S1? And like, it almost felt a little over exuberant. Um, now it feels a little too gloomy. Um, but, you know, we've tried to just, be measured and, you know, and patient and, you know, I mean, you're, we're in a company in today's world. I mean, you can stay private longer. It's like, fine. It's like an IPO is a capital raising event. If you want, I think it's strategic for companies to be public. I think they're better companies because of it, but uh, you know, the, you know, the idea that that's the destination has always felt a little silly. Um, it's just a different, you know, it's just a different source of capital uh, with different constraints in your business. But um so, you know, our plan is to just kind of hang tight and focus on focus on the core and keep operating, keep serving our customers and then uh, let let uh, let the, uh, you know, the bankers, and the analysts speculate on when the markets are going to reopen and tell us. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. What do you what do you have to do to get the profitability? I mean, is there is there a bit, any heavy lifting there or is it just scale? You know, our model gets a lot of leverage relative to like the core foundations. We have a complex operation. We like running clinical trials with clinical oversight. We have care teams with the supply chain. You know, it's like um, but there are just so many things in Armada that just do not scale linearly, linearly with enrollments and revenue um, where you have to have kind of the strong base no matter what. Right. Ticket of entry doesn't matter if it's one, you know, one enrollment versus like 20,000. But you know, I mean, if you, you came and told me that, hey, you know, could we drop another 400,000 enrollments onto your operations right now? Say, yeah, sure. Uh, so so it's, um, you know, it's and, and I mean, like any business right now, as you should in, in all times, frankly, but especially in these times, we're critiquing every dollar and making sure that, you know, we're getting output for it and from it and being more conservative and, you know, and where we, you know, place the chips as you should, um, uh, you know, but, uh, you know, uh, the, um it's, you know, it's a little bit more uh, business as usual on our side. Okay. So I guess, you know, where's the leverage in the model, 
you know, longer term? Is it is it is it more members or or is it that, just that's that's a key improving, you know, the, mm-hmm. the outcomes uh, or taking risk? You know, what 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 do you have to do to get, I guess, lever- more leverage? Uh, well, I, I mean, the uh, more more members is you know always the you know if you kind of tornadoed where a business gets leverage, that's always kind of the highest. Um, you know, I mean, if we mm-hmm. um, you know get more interest from you know the the people that have us covered you know that's great and and you know i mean i think we were we're, we're good there there's always this um it was always kind of this chronic thing on like how can we you know how can we support the world to be to be stronger because you know oftentimes it's interesting in our space you know sometimes even if you'll get the the permission from your clients to lead marketing and earn their trust to do it um you know they may not have all the contact data they'll send over files with you know 50 percent email coverage and of those you know a number of are bad and um, this is where I think this health systems intersection in kind of this chicken and egg can be really powerful for our business because, you know, we've kind of hit that point where, I mean, one in 10, one in 10 people, you know, now have an Omada commercial insured adults now have like an Omada benefit in their medical policy. Like that's a lot. That's like, I could walk down the street, mm-hmm. stop this podcast <laughs> right now and, and go, get a, go, go evangelize Omada and probably get some, uh, get some hits. So, um, uh, you know, I think that there, there will be a little success breed success the leverage that comes as you just get more awareness, more, more coverage, begets more coverage, begets more awareness, begets more coverage. So, you know, with that in mind, you know, that one in 10, uh, figure, you know, how do you think about just virtual care broadly, you know, not just Omada, but maybe the industry as a whole, you know, what's your view on, on kind of where virtual care, I don't know. I, I personally kind of think of virtual care as just care yeah. <laughs> at this point. But I'd love to get your view on, on, you know, where you think the the virtual component of it is is headed. Yeah. So the the I'm with you on that. Um, you know, it's always been a little bit funny. It's like, well, I'm connecting with my doctor on a phone call, and I'm calling it virtual care. Um, what what is not success and doesn't improve economics is just a find and replace. Oh, we were doing an in person visit. Now we're doing a video visit. You know, un- unfortunately, I think that that's the mindset of you know, a lot of folks, when they think about virtual criminal models, not, we don't, we're not going to launch a telemedicine offering. It's not, you know, that nothing, you know, nothing that's not the, like that is on the docket for us. Um, uh, you know, I, I think where it's heading uh, is things like what I described, where it's an intersection of companies like Omada with traditional care, where it's like we are an adjunct to primary care. So, mm-hmm. you know, literally, well, wonderful. You know, we know uh, you have diabetes. We're not going anywhere, but we work with an amazing care partner called, you know, called Omada for diabetes care you know, they're going to support you in an integrated fashion with, you know, the rest of your care here at Intermountain, you know, as an example. Mm-hmm. Um, and we think you're going to love it. And, and I think you'll see more examples of that. Um, I also think that winning, winning organizations will operate, you know, against what I'm starting to call almost like the convenience formulary, which is like, uh, which, which is the intersection between traditional care, you know, virtual care companies like Omada and at home, where it's like, if you imagine what the ideal, system would look like from a convenience standpoint, it would be you, Jonathan, with a need. I'd first ask myself the question, can I safely solve this without making you go anywhere? Right? Why would you, why would I put you, make you drive in your car, book an appointment, come in, if I can safely solve it from afar? If the answer is no, then it's like, all right, is there a chance to cost effectively get this in your home, solved in your home? (laughs) Like, Mm -hmm. you know, can I bring it to you versus making you come to me? All right, well then next question, you have to come to me. Where are you coming? Is it like a modified version of an ambulatory clinic where it's like just to, to collect samples? Like, what do you need? 
then it's like, you know, and then you run down that formula. And the last step is the inpatient hospital. <laughs> it's like the, the hospital size, the most expensive. So it's like, you know, I think if every single clinical need ran through that rubric, the world would be a better place. Um, how long will it take us to get there? Many, many years. But I think that's, that's, where, that's frankly, I think that's where we have to head as a country. Do, we, do you see any interesting models, you know, from where I sit, I hear a lot of the public companies talk about the home and, and the home being the next frontier. You know, as you think about the intersection that you described previously, you know, a virtual, do you see any interesting models, you know, that are in the home today? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think there's all sorts of all sorts of cool models. Um, uh, you know, some are leveraging, you know, a more convenient way to, you know, do annual well, wellness visits, kind of et cetera. Uh, you know, which is not that's no, no critique. That's a I think it's a good thing to be done. Um, uh, I haven't seen anything like what I described, where all the pieces are tied together. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that there's huge opportunity. It's very tough to do that. You need like, um, you know, a lot of the at home world is not too dissimilar to the digital world where it's like focused on one specific thing. I'm going to try to do like, you know, kidney care, either near site or in, you know, at home or like the, you know, it's kind of that one hyper specific thing. So I do think there'll be some sort of a convergence where the, you know, there there's, you know, providers, I mean, it could literally be traditional providers leveraging things like Omada to tie the worlds together, you know, against kind of the rubric I described. Um, uh, uh, you know, but the, the, you know, and, and there's challenge too, because it's like the home model economics can be difficult. So there's a huge logistical challenge. Um, you know what I mean? Where it's like, uh, you know, it took Amazon many, many years to figure out how to, you know, best optimize, um, putting the, uh, you know, the, the, your costs into the ability to get people packaged to their door versus, you know, building out the capital, you know, expenditures to have, you know, actual, actual retail. So I think that, um, there's kind of a scale thing and an optimization thing that needs to happen for the models to be like hugely transformative, but it'll get there. You know, you you mentioned Amazon and, and, you know, I've probably had a million questions over the years about what Amazon's impact is going to be ultimately in healthcare. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, on the pharmacy side, I I don't think there's been too much disruption. I think one medical maybe changes the game a little bit, but what's your view of, of what they're trying to put together? And do you think they have enough, of the pieces yet to, to really be a change agent? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that company is going to do remarkable things in healthcare. I really do. Um, I'm a huge, and I always have been. Um, y- y- you know, there, it's because I get, you probably get this exact same question all the time. People are like, well, what's Google going to do in healthcare? What's Facebook going to do in healthcare? What the Apple, and I have points of view on each. Um, but I've always said, I've been pretty consistent. It's like Amazon, I think, is going to be the organization that really does help to drive remarkable change. Um, uh, that is an organization where culturally they like care about the, de- the detail um, and, and, and like operate with a huge learning mindset. And so, I mean, if you look at kind of their new team, that's there, like the, the plays that they've made, like it shows depth of expertise um, mm-hmm. in, in kind of a, a really proper, important way. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, I think that that, that is, and it, and it speaks to their strengths, which is, you know, like I just mentioned kind of this remote thing and we used Amazon example and they're this at home thing. Like it speaks to their strengths of, you know, optimizing the consumer experience in, you know, with, with a different, um, you know, delivery modality. So, uh, yeah, I think it's going to be, I think they're going to be, you know, 20 years from now, an enormous player. In healthcare. What about the other big tech companies? You know, do you have a, a view on them? I think they'll, I think they'll um, have their contributions. Um, you know, I think that this is Sean speaking less, I'm not like representing the Omada point of view or anything, but the, um, uh, you know, I think 
Facebook will stay out too too much, you know, privacy data risk for it to make sense for them. I think Google will uh, uh, make some huge contributions in AI. I mean, they've you know, despite the critique they've had recently with you know open AI and being kind of slower to the game, they have some of the most robust AI capabilities on the planet. They just mm-hmm. you know had to be a little bit measured relative to you know how they use them. Um, and I think that that area, like that technical expertise on you know applied to you know, disease areas, you know, physician optimization improvement, I think is a huge contribution that they'll have. I think Apple will stay a device company. I think um, I've always questioned, will or will not Apple like break the skin barrier? And I, I don't think they will. Um, and that limits what you can do, to be honest. I mean, like, you know, the one could, I, I, I don't know if I've seen the quantified, but so many hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars have gone into trying to crack even something like, can you look at blood sugars with light? to the skin, enormous challenge of physics hasn't really been done. So it's like, um, you know, that's one example of why it's really hard to, you know, there are just things that there are limits to what the Apple watch can do, but I, but I think that they'll, you know, continue to innovate there and, and they may have a, a deeper, um, role in data exchange because they have a brand of you know, credit to them of privacy and, and security. And they've been really, you know, stalwarts there and have a lot of consumer trust on that. And so, you know, if I think, would I be comfortable authing in all my medical records to like Apple HealthCare? I'm like, I'm a huge yes on that. Whereas like others may not have that, you know, consumer support. And so they may have kind of a data, a data, you know, exchange uh, impact as well. We can, yeah, let's connect in 20 years to see uh, how, how right I am. <laughs> I mean, I think Oracle vis-a-vis Cerner has said they're going to have that portable uh, health record, but we'll, we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Well, they got a great leader of Cerner, so who knows? You know, we're getting to the top of uh, the hour here for our time. And, and one of the things I wanted to just maybe end the discussion with is I, I love to ask people kind of what the best advice they've gotten in their career mm-hmm. is. And I'd, I'd love to hear your, your view of, of something that's really stayed with you over the years. You know, it's funny. This, it's, this is, it sounds small, but it's like it's been really important. Um, Early on, someone was like, "Look, seek, seek advisors that don't give that. Like, yes, great, they can give strategic advice, but that have tactical advice. Like, literally, what you'll find is the things that help you most are the tactical things to achieve your strategy. You need to be thinking about strategy all the time. Uh, and, and you know, t- too many uh, times will be like, "Oh, well, this person can really help advise me on strategy here." Like, no, what are the tactics? How do I hire someone? Like, literally, like. What, what interview process should I put people through? Like, how do I fire someone? You know, what, what, like, how should my org be designed? What corporate processes should I use? Should I use OKRs? Like, otherwise, like, what, how do I lead my team meetings? How frequently should my execs meet? Like, all those things are, like, way more helpful. So, you know, when you're building a business, um, lean away from folks that you feel are just all of a sudden latching on to how they think you could help you strategically and lean into folks that are, like, are there any tactical issues I could help you think through? <laughs> that will be the most helpful. Oh, that's great. You know, conversely, you know, if you were to apply that same lens of uh, a lesson learned in your personal life that, that stays with you or maybe drives you, what, what would that be? You know, I mean, this is, this was like, I think really sage advice from a, a friend relative to like relationships and, um, and is the reason why I'm just like, so convinced I married the right person. It's like, you know, it's like, you know what, ask yourself what, what is it when you literally have some free time on your calendar? Like, do you like spending time in the same way as the other person? And it sounds literally so simple, but like, what do we have other than time? 
And so, like, do you like to do the same things? And if there's huge divergence there, I, I actually think that causes like problems. But if there's convergence there, you like li- literally just like like spending time in the same way. Um, you know that I think really reinforces you know a relationship. Um, and as I thought about you know as my wife and I were think you know you know thinking about you know settling down, I'm like heck yes, like we like the answer was so clear that we just like to spend time in the same way. It sounds so small and silly, but I think that's something that gets overlooked. Those are two great pieces of advice. The tactical, uh, tactical focus and do what you like to do with your partner. Exactly. <laughs> Very simple. Very simple, but <laughs> success in, success in your business life and success. In your life. <laughs> exactly. Follow Sean's two point plan. Yes. Right. <laughs> Melissa, Sean, it's been great having you. Uh, we really enjoyed the conversation and hopefully we'll fast forward in a, a couple of years. Maybe you'll be public, maybe not. And, and we can do this again. But uh, thank you very much to, to Sean Duffy, the co-founder and CEO of Amada Health for joining us today. Thank you, Jonathan. Yeah, it was an honor. The Bloomberg Sustainable Business Summit returns to London on April 25th for a solution-driven look at the sustainable business and finance landscape, looking at the latest trends in ESG regulations, supply chain innovation, and transition finance. Speakers include leaders from CDP, Emirates Environment Group, TNFD, Ctrace, COA, and more. Summit advisors include City and Schneider Electric. Visit BloombergLive.com/sbs2024 to learn more.